the Gospel of Mark, chapter number one. I'd like to read the first eight verses and talk and teach a little bit about the revival in the wilderness. Mark, chapter one, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and all were baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it's our privilege to break the bread of life and to share this message with the folks here. We pray that you give them ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly. We're so glad that you love this world enough to give your only begotten son and provide all kinds of blessings and benefits for us through salvation. So thank you for the shed blood that was spilt on Calvary's hill. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. In Jesus name and everyone said amen. The gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four gospels. All of the gospels give us the story of how Jesus died. But Mark does not give us the birth narrative that Matthew and Luke give us. In fact, just like the Gospel of John, it just launches right into speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we think of this particular gospel, the tradition of the early disciples of the church say that Mark, John Mark, was the interpreter of the Apostle Peter, that he traveled with Peter. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, it says in verse 37, as Peter was preaching there to Cornelius folks, verse 37, he says, The word you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. So you can see that Peter in his preaching told Cornelius and his family the gospel story by starting with John the Baptist. So John Mark, who labored with Peter, it is believed that he compiled all of these stories that he had heard as Peter preached. And of course, we know by the help of the Holy Ghost and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he put all of these things down in order. Now, they're not necessarily in chronological order. But these are true and factual statements of what took place in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, verse 1, it speaks of the beginning. So everything has a beginning. All things have to have some starting point. And the reason he starts with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because he wants us to understand what the good news is all about. This book is only 16 chapters long. If you were to sit down and start reading it from the first verse right to the end of chapter 16, 
If you were just reading it casually, you'll probably be done inside of an hour and 45 minutes. But you would learn the good news and you would learn what it was that Mark was trying to teach every reader who would take the time to read this. So he describes Jesus as the son of God. That means that this person, Jesus, was divine. Mark's not under any impression that that Jesus was just a good teacher or some kind of philosopher or some ethical guy. He wants everybody to know that this man was supernatural. That's why Mark goes out of his way to give us so many illustrations of Jesus casting out devils. The supernatural element in the gospel of Mark is everywhere. It is emphasized and the accent in regard to that element is everywhere. But notice, if he's going to deal with the beginning, he starts then with what the prophets say in verse 2. So this tells us he was familiar with the Old Testament prophecies. He was familiar with the scriptures. And he starts by quoting two citations from the Old Testament. One from Malachi and then another from Isaiah chapter 40. And he says, as it is written in the prophets, I send my messenger. So what is a messenger? Somebody who's going to convey a specific teaching or specific belief. And the whole point of this person is to be a forerunner of the one who's coming afterwards. John wants us to know that this is who John the Baptist is. Now, we're living in the last days. This is what the scripture teaches. And we've been in the last day period since the coming of the Lord. We know that from Hebrews chapter one. But the scripture says that Jesus is going to return. But before he returns, there has to be people that go out into the uttermost parts of the earth and preach the gospel. So just like John the Baptist, the forerunner for the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ is the forerunner for Christ who's soon to come again. And this is why the message of repentance is preached all around the world, calling people to turn from their iniquity and to turn from their sins. So God is constantly trying to prepare a way, as he says in verse three. And the way he does that, he has to have a voice crying in the wilderness. I've said continually that every town, every city, every village in America is one person away from a move of God. One person, not two, not five, just one person. Whenever God wanted to bring revival to Israel or do something great amongst any people in Scripture, he needed one person to open up their mouth to speak. When he wanted to change Assyria and deal with the city of Nineveh, He found one man named Noah to go there and lift up his voice and began to proclaim the truth. When God wanted to go amongst the Israelites and prepare them for their deliverance from Egypt, he had one man. He sent Moses down there. Aaron was his mouthpiece, declaring the word of the Lord. And when God wanted to work amongst the children of Israel, when they were in a backslidden condition, he sent Jeremiah down to the gates of the temple and he said, Preach the message of repentance. Tell them to amend their ways. So God is always looking for somebody to be a mouthpiece for him. When Jesus was born, there was a prophetess that was letting everybody know that salvation had now come. See, 
There's always somebody God has to use. God cannot communicate his word the way he would like to communicate it unless he has somebody to declare it. So the teacher, the preacher, the minister, the witness is essential for the proclamation of the truth that God wants articulated in the earth. And he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, there's not even a lot of people in the wilderness. So why in the world would anybody want to spend so much time out there preaching to those who are in the wilderness? Well, because the people who live in the vicinity of uh, that kind of deserted and desert area, they're just as important to God as the people that lived in Jerusalem in the big city. Do you realize God loves rural America as much as he loves the big cities? Did you know that? That God cares about us that are out here just like he does about those that live in those places that have 10 million people or 5 million people. He loves the folks in Hebron as much as he does the ones that are over in Bangladesh. He's as concerned about us right here as he is about the folks in Omaha or somebody else in Kansas City. And we don't ever want, want to forget that. So out here, the nice thing about having a voice that's crying out in the wilderness is that voice typically is going to be heard. Because you don't usually have a whole lot of competition out in the wilderness when you're telling people to repent of their sins. But there are a lot of voices clamoring for people's attention wherever you have large numbers of people congregated. This is why Paul says in Corinthians How shall people prepare themselves for battle unless the trumpet give a very distinct sound? So we have to tell people exactly what they're supposed to do. And in verse three, the voice and the message prepare the way of the Lord, make a clear path for them. If if we were in South America and we were having to go down through the Amazon region, There are a lot of places down there where there are no trails. And that means somebody's got to come along with a knife or machete or something like that. And and they've got to cut and they've got to hack their way through all of that thick brush so that the ones who later on are going to come along are going to find it to be an easy an easy road for them. But, you know, the one that's got to do all the pioneer work, it's difficult. If, if you've ever seen those, those shows that come on television with the people that live up there in Alaska who, who's, who, who basically subsist off of those, those trap lines, then if you've heard them tell the stories of those trap lines, how they had to go out there and with, with an axe basically cut their way through all of those places in order to set up to trap the different animals that they want, But after they've had that trap line for years or decades, it almost looks like a foot trail going through there because the animals, they end up getting trapped in there. But somebody's going back and forth and constantly checking to see if the animals are there. So when the scripture says make a make a straight path or clear a path for him, it's saying somebody should do all of the necessary footwork to make it easier for other people to come along and hear the word of the Lord. That's not an easy thing to do. It's a time consuming deal. And if God ever asks you to open up your mouth and speak to your family or ask you to open up your mouth and talk to people on your job 
or to open up your mouth and talk to the people who are your neighbors, then you'll understand you will be a voice crying out in the wilderness. Because the wilderness is a very barren place, often a forsaken place. And wherever you find a heart that doesn't have God, you're dealing with fallow ground and you're dealing with something that needs the help of the Holy Spirit to bring about any kind of fruitfulness there. So as a Christian, then, when you find people who don't know God, you found a wilderness. You found an unfruitful place. You found uh, an area where the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to penetrate. And remember, as it says in the first sentence there, this is only the beginning of the gospel. This is how it starts. It starts with somebody crying out. It starts with somebody being the first one to do it. This is, this is one of the reasons I was really interested in going over there to Kazakhstan, because I had I'd wanted to get into Central Asia, and then I knew there were not a lot of people that were going over there. It was just too exotic, too far away for a lot of people to, to want to go. And then to get there, and then to go and preach the gospel, I realized that, that I was involving myself in something that was brand new. I had a, a class of people there. They were the first class that's going to be sent out to pioneer churches amongst the Muslims. Here we were able to teach them and share with them the gospel. At the same time, even though they're part of a, a full gospel denomination, there's not a lot of people from their denomination coming over there to see what they're doing or even to participate in what they're doing. They're just kind of watching from afar. So to go over there and work with them to help them clear the brush to reach parts of Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan and other places is important. It means that monies will have to be put into that region. It means that visits will have to be made to that region. But if somebody's going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, then somebody has to be willing to open up their mouth to declare what they hear God say. But somebody has to know what God is saying. See, the, the thing that made John the Baptist exceptional wasn't that he could cry out and, and make a lot of noise, but that he had something to say. There are a lot of people get up to teach and to preach, but they don't have anything to say. And to have a message that ministers to people is absolutely essential. So this, this man, John, obviously was attracting the attention of a lot of people. Now, you, you can understand why if, if you're eating locusts and you're walking around in camels here, you're probably going to stand out. Yeah. And and if, if, if you start telling people that they need to repent, then that's that's certainly going to capture the attention of a whole lot of people. But God was doing something in the hearts of the folks because verse four says he was baptizing in the wilderness. That tells us there were people that were responsive to the message. And that's exactly what people want. Nobody likes to talk to people and share things with people and then be ignored. You don't like to talk to your kids and then have your kids just ignore what you're saying. You want them to value what you're saying. So imagine how God feels when the Lord is trying to communicate truth to people and get them on the right road and try to lead them in a path that's going to bring blessing into their life. And they are ignoring what the Lord has said, because as the scripture describes, they're stiff necked, stubborn. You know what stiff necked is. What, what happens with a little a little toddler 
when uh, you take the little rattler or something away from the little baby and the baby gets upset and just stiffens up like that. See, that, that's, what, that's how the children of Israel would become. But a person who has a heart that is pliable and God can work with that heart, he can change that heart. That's the kind of person that will respond out here. And this is why they were coming in the wilderness. And you see the message there. Repentance for the remission of sins. Now this, this issue is important because John the Baptist was the son of a priest. So with his father being in ministry and his father being involved with the offerings of animals for sins, John the Baptist was well aware of what sin was. And undoubtedly he had been learned in the scriptures. So for him to be saying to all of these people, look, turn from your iniquity, turn from your sin, repent and come, come to God and get right with the Lord. That is the way to break up fallow ground. If you're going to have revival in the wilderness, you have to minister the things that produce revival rather than the things that are the fruits of revival. So oftentimes when Churches have protracted meetings or evangelistic meetings. Somebody will come in and preach. They'll preach on the things that usually are the result of revival. They'll preach on how the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or they'll preach on how God can do greater things with your finances. They'll preach on how reaching the lost is, is absolutely essential. Those are the fruits of repentance. But if, if, if you want to have a genuine move of God in the wilderness where people are going to change their lives, there has to be a message that cuts their heart with the conviction of God so that they'll experience godly sorrow and repent. What is repentance? I'm sorry that I did it and I'm not going to do it again. That's, that's repentance. Turn in the opposite direction and go that way. And here's how revival takes place. And that kind of a message is what we have to have, not only in the greater cities of America. Folks, we need that in rural America again. We need preachers once again to know the difference between what is right, what is wrong, what is righteous, and what is sin. And unless we call people to repent of their sins, how are we ever going to have changed lives? Now, the problem we're having today is there's so many gray areas for different people. And some people don't like the word sin. They find the word sin offensive and they, they find it to be a, a derogatory uh, word. But I mean, goodness, folks, if you think God meant it as a compliment, you ought to read the Bible again. I mean, there's nothing in the scripture that describes sin in a positive way. But revival comes when people are repenting and they've got to hear that message. This nation was founded by not just uh, politicians who, who had an idea of, of what kind of government we ought to have, but by preachers who were in the pulpit preaching to these politicians and telling them what thus saith God. And, and, and when they looked into the scriptures, although people don't always look at it this way today, if, if there was a thundercloud that came over a city in Connecticut and, and folks had their farms held out, you know what them preachers did? They got up in that pulpit and said, all you farmers need to be repenting of your sins and calling on God and trying to figure out what's going on so it doesn't happen again. 
There was always something that was leading people to think highly of God and less of themselves. So that when we consider who God is, we, 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 we live a life of humility and a life where we're repenting daily. So the, the scripture here is very plain. In verse 5, a revival broke out because it said everybody went out to meet him and they were being baptized. So there, there's a lot of folks making their way to the wilderness. Imagine, imagine you being so in, encouraged by a meeting with someone preaching the gospel that you decided to walk a mile and a half outside of town. It'd have to be God to get you in the open air like that and you walk out there. That's exactly what a lot of these folks did. But this is what happened back in the great revivals of the 18th century, even the 19th century here in America and over in Europe. When you had people like George Whitfield and John Wesley and Howell Harris and John Elias and so many of these other preachers who on horseback would go and preach outdoors sometimes to 10,000 people. Folks would come and stand outside just to listen to them be told that they should repent of their sins. And communities changed. Bars shut down. Families changed. Drunkards came to know the Lord. All of this simply because somebody dared open up their mouth and declare the word of the Lord. I, I like occasionally to pull out some of John Wesley's old diaries and just read about his travels. Because you, you, you figure he, he lived from 1703 to 1791. He lived a long time. And he kept a diary for the greater part of 60 or more years. So when, when I read about how he'll say over in England, he went and preached in one little town at 8 a.m. in the morning. And then he had 1,500 people out there and he'll tell about folks that were falling down under the power and people screaming and crying out for the name of Jesus. Then 1030, he was, a, he was several miles away in another location preaching. Then you go through all of that for about a week and a half. And, and I mean, I, I look at his schedule, then I look at my schedule and I say, oh my goodness, I'm a slacker. <laughs> this man was preaching 50 and 60 times outdoors a day, or I should say uh, in, in a week period. And here we've got vehicles and we're living in air conditioning. And for us to affect our own communities is something that is a challenge, you see. But the revival, when it comes, a whole lot of people are stirred up by it. And, and this is why we have this here in verse number five. Certainly, when people are turning from their sins, they're, want, they're going to want to give witness to the new life that they're experiencing. And that's why they were going down in the waters and being baptized. Now, when I lived in Israel, if they had a mass of people that went down to the River Jordan, the people in Jerusalem believed then... As I always heard when I lived there, they didn't think that John went down there and just one by one baptized them. They, they think sometimes probably hundreds of them might have went down into that river. And then John might have stood up on the side of that hill and told them all to be baptized and they immersed themselves. And I've seen people do that in Israel when I lived there. So person up on the bank, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then them folks baptize themselves, immerse themselves, and then people come right up out of the water, excited about how wonderful God is. 
The reason baptism follows repentance is because baptism is of no value to you if you don't have any knowledge of sin. See? It has meaning to you or for you and it is valuable to you when you have some idea of what has occurred inside of you. And this is why so many people, when they end up oftentimes going somewhere where they do immerse or something like that, then people say, I'd like to be baptized in the river or in the water. Because now they realize, even if I was an infant and I was sprinkled, I don't have a memory of it, but I know what God is doing now. See, it's the same, with, same thing with new birth. My birthday is September 22nd, 1969. The only reason I know that is because my mom and pops told me that. I don't remember. But when I was born again that second time, see, I know exactly what happened. And nobody had to tell me that day what occurred because it occurred inside of me. See, So when you look at this in, in verse number five, then the fact that people are wanting to get in the water shows revival. Now, in the Gospel of John, you can see where Jesus himself was baptizing people. And they were ba being baptized because they wanted an outward expression of the fact that they had come to accept the teaching of Jesus and his beliefs concerning the kingdom of God. And that's why the scripture says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, then baptize them. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So we baptize in water. And when people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ want to give outward testimony because of the inward work that God has done inside of them. And they want family and friends to see this and experience this. We do our best to make our way to a river or to some kind of body of water where we can put them down in and bring them up, and then everybody can go to clapping and screaming and shouting and praising God because it's been one beautiful testimony of what God has done. So I think everybody who went in the water and came out, they were excited. And that happens when revival is taking place. People do want to be baptized because they realize God is doing something in their life. Now, the description we have here in verses 6 and 7 uh, are, are remarkable, as I said before, because even though camel's hair and camel's skin and the camel as a beast of burden certainly was used by a lot of people, you probably didn't see a lot of people walking around in camel's hair. There's a difference between camel's hair and camel's skin. This man is clothed in camel's hair. And if he's got a belt that's around him, then whatever kind of an upper garment that he's put together or has been put together for him, he somehow believes that this is a representative, a representative of his faith and he certainly doesn't think it's displeasing to God, but there are a whole lot of other people that probably don't find it attractive. But here he is with a with camel's hair on. It's kind of like the Old Testament people who would put on sackcloth and ashes, you know. And 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 the, the reason they put that on is to show 
their grief over sin, show their detestation for sin, at the same time to show how they were humbling themselves because of the sin. And all this was for, for John the Baptist was a, a uniform that was like that. I don't think he thought it produced any holiness. Where it says he ate locusts, Leviticus chapter 11 tells us that locusts were considered clean. So he could eat those. Does that excite you? Yeah, he, he, he uh, somebody said like pig feet, huh? Okay. So locusts in Leviticus 11, verses I think 21, 22, consider this to be, to be, uh, a clean animal. And then let me say this about the dietary laws in, in Leviticus. You know, a lot of times people say God didn't want them to eat this because those foods weren't healthy for them. Nowhere in the Levitical law do you find God talking to them about what was healthy or what was bad. They couldn't eat pork and shrimp and catfish simply because God told them not to. God didn't say anything about it's going to clog your arteries. He just said, I'm telling you, you can't have it, period. And then the, some of the foods that were considered clean, if you go back in the Old Testament and look at some of those, you'd probably be scratching your head as to why he let them eat some of those. But it had everything to do with how the hoof was, whether it was parted, whether it was together. So returning to this, wild honey would have grown everywhere in the valleys of the deserts in southern Israel because you would have been able to find wild bees all over the place there just like you could find them in northern Israel in Galilee. You know, one of the reasons that they describe the promised land as a land of milk and honey is because the, the ancient Israelites believed that a good area like Galilee was Filled with honeybees. And you could find these bees producing that wild honey everywhere. In crags and in crevices, in the sides of mountains. You could find them on the inside of trees. And in Galilee, the ancient rabbis said there was honey everywhere because the climate was conducive to it. See, Think about that. So a beautiful land of milk and honey. Figuratively and even literally. God knew exactly what he was doing with, with the children of Israel. Now John's message, of course, was one of baptism and then repentance. But verse number seven goes on to tell us here he had another message. He said, there's coming somebody greater than me. Now that's a, that's a good man there. He, he says in another place, I have to decrease so that he can increase. Christ is most important. He is the one that we're here to proclaim. We're not trying to promote ourselves. We're not trying to promote any one person, any one movement, any one church. The most important person on the planet is the Lord Jesus Christ. And John says, I'm not even worthy enough to be a servant or a slave and take his sandals off his feet. That's a humble man. And to do that would have been the role of a subservient person. Any one of means could have walked into any home or location, especially their own home if they were wealthy, and there would have been a number of servants that would have come and been willing to take the sandals off his feet and then to wash his feet. John the Baptist is humble enough to know 
that Christ is coming, his cousin, who's going to be mightier than he is. And then he goes on to even explain to us where the power is going to be manifested. He says there in verse 8, I've been baptizing you folks in water and with water, but this guy's going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost and with the Holy Ghost. And that occurred on the day of Pentecost. So John the Baptist had a powerful ministry. Let's not forget that. His message changed people. He was so hated by the family of Herod. Let's not forget that Herod's wife wanted to see John the Baptist dead. Because John the Baptist took his little skinny finger, stuck it up under the nose of the king, and said it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. You murdered your own kin so that you could have your sister-in-law. It's wicked. And because John the Baptist opened up his mouth to say that, Herodias, she hated him. And she had, had uh, a party there with her hubby. And had her daughter go out there and do a nice little belly dance for all the men that had gathered together. And, and those men were, oh my goodness, they're just so enthused by that dance that she did. They said, oh my, I'm willing to give you up to half my kingdom, girl. What is it that you want? Just tell me you can have it. So she went and conferred with her mother. And her mother said, you know what? We've got enough houses and lands and money. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. That's got to be a wicked woman. That's got to be a wicked woman. Say something like that. Ask that the prophet of God be beheaded. She came back and said to the king, look, mama wants John's head on a platter and wants it out here for everybody to see it. And where the word of the king is, there's power. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. And so, went right after John the Baptist, sent the executioner down there without any sympathy, beheaded the man, put it on a platter, brought it up there in front of everybody, and the woman was tickled that John the Baptist was dead. Here was a man that preached repentance, saw thousands of people change their lives. And according to the scripture, he never even did a miracle. He never did one miracle. Think of that, to have a mighty ministry without miracles. And that's exactly what he had. This man, he said, there's somebody coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, they didn't know what that was because up until this point, nobody had ever been baptized with the Holy Ghost. Nobody had had that experience. They certainly didn't know what in the world it was. The Holy Spirit was around in the Old Testament. David said the Spirit of God was in my tongue helping me to write the Psalms. We know from Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and 3 that the Spirit of God was around during the time of creation. And over and over again, I can show you in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit was actively involved with the prophets and prophetesses as they were doing the work of God. But now John the Baptist has introduced something they have no idea what he's talking about. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, this guy is mightier than me. And of course, later on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God fell on 120 or so people, and filled them, tongues of fire appearing over their heads, the wind of God blowing 
in that place. And then they began to speak with, with other tongues. It was all in fulfillment of what John the Baptist had prophesied. And I'm sure afterwards somebody said, this is exactly what John was talking about. In Acts chapter 1, it was Peter who, when they were looking for an apostle to take the place of Peter, you remember, he said, we need somebody who's been with us since the beginning. What was the beginning for Peter? Since the days of John the Baptist. Somebody who's traveled with us and ministered with us. And so Mark begins his gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes right into the ministry of John the Baptist. His ministry is pivotal to understanding the coming of the Lord to begin his teaching ministry in the earth. And I can assure you that the same spirit that was in John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb, is the same spirit that's at work in the earth today, preparing people to have a voice because the Lord is going to return. There's no doubt about it. We've got a generation of people that are as in the dark today about the baptism of the Holy Ghost as they were in John's day. But it doesn't change the fact that John prophesied it's going to happen. And then Jesus made sure he poured out his spirit. So as Christians then, we think about this here. We say, God, where is the God of John the Baptist? And I'm sure if God would respond to us, he'd say, looking for another John the Baptist that would be led by God. Somebody that would have a voice that would lift it up and cry out in the wilderness. Thayer County can be different. Adams County can be different. Webster County, Knuckles County, any county can be different if somebody will open up their mouth and begin to declare the kingdom of God. That's when revival comes. But God just needs one person, boy or girl, man or woman. Amy Simple McPherson built the largest church there over in California during the Great Depression. First woman ever to put together a radio uh, a Christian radio broadcasting thing during the depression, 5,000 people in that, in that auditorium that she built. Charlie Chaplin and all the other actors and actresses would come out to that uh, Angelus temple just to see what kind of props she might use in her services. I've got a couple of cassette tapes of her preaching. She's very dramatic. But she, she was a lady that moved in the power of God. I was telling Tiffany the other, the other day about how she, she liked to, uh, you know, she liked to be, be very theatrical. So one day she got a, a motorcycle. She put on an old policeman's uniform, had a helmet that she pulled down over her head. This would have been like in the 20s, folks. And, and in that, that, that big auditorium she had, the platform could put the choir up there, two or three hundred people, and then on either side of that platform you had ramps that went up. And so she arranged for that front door to be open so she could ride down that center aisle in front of thousands of people in that, that loud motorcycle. And when she got down there, she went around the front, went up on the platform, and then she took her police whistle, blew it thousands of people and yelled stop in the name of Jesus you're all going to hell 
how, how'd, how'd you like that for an intro to a message? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, then she got off the bike and went on and preached the gospel. And, and hundreds of people came down there and got saved. See, that, that kind of stuff, it thrills my heart, folks. You know, there are a lot of people, they get angry about the idea of a lady telling somebody about Jesus. But when I was drowning in sin, I, I don't think anybody who's drowning cares about the gender of the person who's throwing them that, that, uh, that lifeline. They just want to get out of that sin and get out of that water. But, but she preached the gospel and revival came in that Echo Park region there in California because somebody wasn't afraid to lift up their voice. So I pray that God would use all of us to be those same kind of people not be intimidated by anybody. Because one day, we're going to stand before him, and I'd much rather hear him say, well done, you good and faithful servant, than for him to have me standing there banging on the door from the outside, nobody opening up, and said, if you listened to me, you'd been here on the other side. But since you didn't, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the ministry of John the Baptist. We're happy that Mark started his gospel the way that he did. Lord, there are people in here tonight hungry for you, thirsty for the living water. Do something great as we lay in those beds tonight, God. Talk to us in ways that we've never known we could be spoken to. I pray, God, that you would help us to use our voices to tell men and women about the king. We would not be intimidated. And God, let us really see a move of God, a, a revival out here in this area. God, we crave it, we desire it, we pray for it, not that we would receive any glory, but that your son's name would be magnified in this part of America. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen, 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 amen.